0: Hello, and welcome to Walking the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams.
1: Your hosts.
0: I'm Marianne and i would like to welcome you to our podcast thank you so much for joining us tonight today whatever time it is wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours so sit back relax and let me be your guide as we walk into the shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there New Zealand's a small country in the South Pacific for those who don't know us. Comprising of two main islands, the North and the South Islands, we are the last stop and the main gateway for most countries in the world who have bases in the Antarctic. So, geographically, we're a fairly isolated country. However, our isolation doesn't preclude us from our fair share of UFO sightings and encounters. I clearly recall that in late 1978, New Zealand had a flap of UFO sightings, primarily off the coast of the South Island, which was all over our media then, and given my interest in the subject considering my childhood experiences, I was eagerly following what news the public was given. These sightings initially began on December the 21st when the crew of a Safe Air Limited cargo plane observed strange lighted objects around their Argosy aircraft. The lights ranging in size to that of a house tracked them for several minutes before disappearing and reappearing elsewhere. They appeared on the Wellington ATC radar, on the aircraft radar and were sighted by hundreds of people on the ground. Nine days later, late in the evening of december the thirty first more extraordinary events took place off the coast of New Zealand. Another Agassi freight plane, this time carrying an Australian television crew, became involved in a series of UFO sightings that made headlines worldwide. What was extraordinary about these sightings is that not only were they filmed by the film crew on the plane and witnessed by them all and the pilots of the plane, but they were also tracked again by radar in the Wellington and Christchurch plane control centres. On board the Argosy that morning was the pilot Captain Bull Startup and First Officer Bob Gard, both from Blenheim in the South Island of New Zealand. Also on board and in direct response to the first lot of UFO sightings was a small film crew, mainly they were there due to the current Australian interest in UFOs solely as the result of the disappearance of Frederick Valentich two months prior. A pilot whose Cessna light aircraft disappeared over the Bass Strait after he informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control that there was an aircraft a thousand feet above him. The final words that were ever heard from him before he disappeared off the radar for good were It's not an aircraft. So, when the news about our first lot of sightings reached the ears of the Australian press, they contacted a well-known reporter by the name of Quentin Fogerty, who at that stage worked for Channel Zero, now Channel 10, Melbourne Television, to cover the story, mainly because he was at that stage on a holiday in New Zealand. So he and a small film crew comprising of a freelance cameraman by the name of David Crockett, his wife Nairi, a freelance sound recordist, who were both from wellington new zealand dennis grant a new zealand television journalist was also there all managed to get on board an argosy that was traveling the exact same route in the same hours as the first lot of sightings what was recorded on that flight is widely regarded as one of the world's top 10 most credible UFO sightings caught on film and would irrevocably change the lives of all those involved. Both in the air and on the ground, the resulting story was shared worldwide. So, are you ready to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands and learn more about these experiences? Let's begin. Three months after that flight, at a press conference in New York City on the 26th of March 1979, a group of American scientists stated that the light sources captured on film that December morning could not be explained by conventional means. Those at the press conference included Fogerty, Dr. Bruce McAbee, the scientist who headed the inquiry into the case, Professor J. Allen Hynek, Director of the Centre for UFO Studies, Kufos, and John Ackiff, the former president of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP. Dr. Bruce McAbee, an optical physicist specialising in laser technology, then worked as a civilian scientist for the United States Navy's Surface Weapons Center at White Oak, Maryland. He was also a consultant to NICAP, and it was in this capacity that he carried out his investigation into the New Zealand sightings. Maccabee spent three months on the case before releasing his findings, and he travelled to Australia and New Zealand to interview all the witnesses. In addition, he subjected the original film to an exhaustive study and carried out computer enhancement analysis on copies of the film. He then referred his findings to a further 20 scientists and experts in the fields of optics, physics and radar. And they agreed that the light sources could not be explained by any known means. NICAP, which over a period of 22 years had investigated 20,000 reported UFO sightings, was for the first time prepared to endorse the film as showing a genuine, unidentified flying object. I have a very special guest this episode, a gentleman now in his late 80s who is on duty and in control of the Wellington Air Traffic Control Centre at the time of these incidents. He's so kind as to share his recollection of the events with us all. I personally feel very grateful and honoured to have John take time to share his memories of the events with us, but before we get to his recollections, I'm going to give a timeline rundown of what happened on the nights of the encounters. I also have some brief words from the actual conversations between the Wellington radar team and the aircraft pilot, which I'll share with you all. Okay, timeline of the first sightings on the December the 20th to the 21st of 1978. 11.55pm. Unusual lights are spotted in the southern sky from Blenheim's Woodburn RNZAF base by Air Force Warrant Officer Ian Offindell. 11.55pm. Offindell joins Civil Aviation Flight Service Officer Bill Frame in the control tower, relaying the movement of the lights to the Wellington Airport radar controllers who confirm corresponding radar returns. One ten am Argosy freighter piloted by John Randall and Keith Hine departs from Woodburn Airport, Blenheim, en route to Christchurch. One twenty-nine am Wellington Air Traffic Control Radar registers a persistent, unidentified target, moving quickly towards and following the aircraft. Meanwhile, Randall and Hine observe airborne lights near the Clarence River, which are also seen by the Woodburn Control Tower in Blenheim. 3.10am, the Argosy leaves Christchurch Airport bound for Auckland. Nearing Kakura, the aircraft onboard a radar confirms further nearby unidentified readings reported by Wellington Air Traffic Control. 3.14am, another Argosy piloted by Vern Powell and Ian Perry leaves Blenheim. 3.25am, a large bright object shoots in front from the east and tracks parallel with the Argosy visible to the aircrew. 4am, Argosy registers an extremely fast object on its onboard radar and sees the strobing light ahead during its descent to the Christchurch airport. Meanwhile, The first flight, Argosy, makes a 360-degree turn above the Kaikoura coast during its return flight, trying to get a closer look at more airborne lights which are also registering on the onboard radar and at Wellington Control. The lights change colour and at one point even light up the sea with a powerful beam. But, concerned about fuel consumption, Argosy resumes its flight path north, making the last visual sighting of the unidentified objects as the aircraft passes above Wellington.
2: 10 o'clock to you, range 30 miles, it is a large target. This one tracked down from Wellington. We saw first of all about 30 miles out from Wellington. It tracked down to 60 miles and has remained stationary for about three-quarters of an hour, and has now moved about 20 miles to the west.
0: The pilot looked to his 10 o'clock position and was amazed to see that there was a large, bright, glowing white light that was tinged with red exactly where the Wellington radar said it would be.
2: We have a bright, red, glowing light out our 10 o'clock position. Hard to say what range it is, but it's definitely airborne.
0: Of course, the men in the radar room were pretty excited about this because until then, an unidentified and unexplained target had now become a reality to them. The messages between the radar and the pilot continued.
2: The ones off the Clarence Coast have disappeared from the radar at the moment. Roger. That one, the bright red one, has also faded from radar at this time. It's still there. It's very bright.
0: We are very pleased you saw that one. We've been tracking it since half past midnight
2: and we were hoping that someone would see it. It is the most pronounced of them.
0: Despite the fact that the flight crew were unable to estimate the size of the object, radar puts its position at 2,000 to 3,000 feet above the aircraft.
2: It appears to be a stationary at the moment. That is confirmed. It has been stationary there for about 45 minutes.
0: However... The UFO then suddenly began to move on a parallel track with the aircraft.
2: That one on your left, I think you will find it is starting to move in the same direction as yourself. It would appear it has moved approximately four miles while we have been speaking. Yes, the light just gone out. He has disappeared from the radar too.
0: However, the UFO soon reappeared both visually for the pilots and on radar and it tracked the Argosy for about 12 miles before disappearing. At around the same time, Andy Hood, who was pretty excited about all of this, called up the Christchurch radar room.
2: Jackpot! The southbound Argosy has seen a big red thing.
0: My god.
2: Yes, about 10,000 feet. About 2,000 feet above them. We can see it too on the radar.
0: And special thanks to Sam and Nick for voicing that for me. They did an awesome job. Thanks, guys. Timeline of the second sightings, December 31st, 1978. 11.50pm. Argosy aircraft captained by Bill Startup and Robert Gard takes off from Wellington bound for Christchurch with the film crew on board. 0.505am. Four to five flashing lights are first seen east of Blenheim by an Argosy freighter flying south to Christchurch. Five minutes later, the Wellington radar confirms targets which coincide with their visual position. 022 AM. Wellington Aircraft Control reports a sizeable radar target straight ahead of the aircraft which then travels to port. The aircraft turns 360 degrees but is unable to relocate the light. 027 a.m. More bright flashing lights appear visually and on radar east of the Kaikoura Peninsula. They rapidly approach the aircraft and seem to pass above it. 101 a.m. Christchurch air traffic control radar confirms an unidentified target tracking parallel with the aircraft prior to their landing which then carries on southward. 2.16am. The Argosy takes off from Christchurch and is almost immediately joined by a large orangish light which is filmed by the film crew on the plane but there were actually more than one light flying around the craft as affirmed by John later in this episode. 2.23am. Targets near the Kaikoura Peninsula show radar, both in Wellington and on board the aircraft. A variety of unexplained lights and radar returns accompany the aircraft throughout its return flight until the lights of Blenheim come into view. 3.10am. Argosy SAE lands at Woodburn Airport and journalist Quentin Fogarty makes immediate arrangements to take the resulting form footage back to Channel Zero in Sydney. Fogarty said this about part of his own personal sighting of some of the UFOs on board the Argosy. They pointed out lights of Kakura Township in the distance and that was when my heart skipped a beat. There apparently hovering above the town was a row of bright pulsating lights. The crew had spotted the lights several minutes earlier and it did not take them very long to realise they were looking at something unusual. After all, the night sky was their domain. They had flown the same route many times before and they were familiar with the conventional light sources in the area but these lights were neither stars, planets, ground lights, fishing boats nor cabin light reflections. I was totally fascinated by the row of lights pulsating in the distance. On closer inspection I realised they were not exactly above the town but slightly out to sea. At times there were six or seven in a row, one would fade and disappear and suddenly another would grow and pulsate. To me they were like globes of pulsating light ranging in colour from yellowish white to orange with a red tinge. When they expanded they did so quickly and they retained their brilliance from a pinpoint to the final globular shape. It was like watching a string of incandescent bulbs been turned on and off. Occasionally the light shone downwards like the beam from a searchlight. End quote. Before I share this interview with you, I want to apologise in advance for the recording quality of the sound. John is very old school, he only had a landline phone. So in order to be able to record his interview, I had to use a bit of Kiwi ingenuity. And I had my cell phone on speakerphone and I was recording the conversation from my cell phone speaker through my microphone. The quality of both our voices isn't that great, and that's the reason why, but it's the best that I could do, and you can still hear him quite clearly, very articulate man, very charming gentleman, and I'd like to introduce you now to my guest, John Cordy. Okay, John, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me. I'm really grateful to you that you're taking the time out of your day to do this and to share your experiences and your remembering of the incident i was i was really excited when susie told me about you actually because i wanted to do some episodes on new zealand ufo sightings not not only my own experiences but you know and what better one is there than the kakura incident
1: yep we'll do our best
0: thank you so much
1: okay hi there i'm john cordy 886 86, retired air traffic controller, and the night shift of December the 20th, 21st, 1978 is still going on. I'm still working it because people are interested in the sightings of that night and of the night few le- few nights later when the UFOs we saw were captured on film as well as being seen visually and on radar. It's been suggested that this is one of the most significant UFO sightings by Dr. McAbee who was a physicist for the New Zealand, for the sorry, the American Navy who investigated it. It all started as I say the night of the 20th, 21st, beautiful lovely clear night, nice warm, no winds, no clouds, gin clear sky, beautiful, and I was going on duty in the Wellington Air Traffic Control Center. To look after the aircraft flying at night, the only airplanes I was expecting were a DC8 coming in from Sydney sometime after midnight, and then two Argosies doing freight runs up and down the country. So I figured with a couple of nights to go to Christmas, it was going to be a nice, quiet, peaceful, peaceful night shift. How wrong can you get? Anyway, I went in, took over the took over the watch, signed myself on which then gave me responsibility for any aircraft that were flying in the middle third of the country from New Plymouth across to Gisborne in the north and down from Westport across to Kaikoura in the south. If you wanted to fly in there, you had to have a clearance from me. Even if you wanted to do a little local flight somewhere in a little small town, you needed a clearance from me for search and rescue purposes at least. Anyway took over the watch as I said and um, there was another controller on with me Andy heard he was waiting for the DC-8 to come in because sometimes the aeroplane would request a talk down approach for pilot training or pilot examination and Andy had to wait just to see if the DC-8 was going to to request one. It wasn't due for another half an hour so we weren't even talking to it at that stage anyway Andy looked looked at we checked out the radar and we noticed three little blips moving around off just off the coast by Blenheim in the South Island. And they were moving not randomly, but sort of in, in, in like ovals, circles. And Andy and I joked, we said it's Father Christmas of test driving the sleigh with Rudolph in front and his nose is giving off the radar echoes. Then Blenheim rang us up. Blenheim air traffic rang us up and said, "Had had we got any aircraft going into Blenheim because they could see lights in the sky? Well, we didn't have any airplanes going to Blenheim, so but we started talking about these lights and their visual sightings agreed with us when we said they're going north, they would agree, and they turn around, they're going south. One's going south, two are going north, and Blenheim." traffic could see the lights doing what we were described they were doing on radar and vice versa, which made us think of it. Then, of course, we thought it could have been some illegal helicopters but not very likely to be three, maybe one perhaps but no. Anyway, we discounted it. We then had an argosy going from Wellington to Blenheim. It was the last out of Wellington for the night and uh, he went across to Blenheim, and he said he could see these lights as they crossed the coast. They were definitely airborne because you could see them shining down on the, onto the sea. So again, that made us think. The DC-8 came in, no problems at all. Meantime, the phones were going a little bit uh, crazy. We had phone calls from people at the Hutt Valley north of Wellington, people in the South Island, the police in Wellington, the police in Blenheim, the police in a place called 7 mm. had we got aircraft because we, they could all see people were seeing strange lights in the sky hello we thought there's something funny here Andy in fact could have gone home but he decided to stay he was just so intrigued then we noticed a, a target tracking out on Wellington radar tracking out from Wellington to the southeast and it went out to about 60 miles and then it stopped now that is strange, and we could still see it. Now that is funny because theoretically if the if the object, the aircraft, is not making a move in with respect to the radar head, it, it should disappear. Otherwise we would be seeing returns from uh, trees, houses, building, people, mm-hmm. anything that was standing still, we would see returns mm-hmm. from it. The radar did have a, a, a switch called Moving Target Indicator, which switched off all the, all the returns. If we switched it off, we could get these returns so we could check that the radar was operating correctly with some fixed point returns that had to be at the exact bearing and distance so that we knew the radar was okay. But anyway, that switch was on, so we should not have seen this this uh, return. Then we had an Argosy take off to go to Christchurch from Blenheim, and as it took off and flew flew off from the coast to join the seaward route down to Christchurch, the target we had at the southeast moved across towards the Argosy. We told the Argosy that they couldn't see it, so anyway, that Argosy disappeared, and a little bit later, another one, another Argosy out of Blenheim for Christchurch, and now, Suddenly the, air, the target moved across, turned with the with the Argosy as it went southwards and parallel tracked it for a good 40 miles, 15 miles out to the east of it. We told the airplane about it and they said yes, they could see a bright light in the sky which was reddish-tinged and was a slightly above them. Then they said it's gone and our radar target had gone. Then they said it's back and our radar target was back, which led me and many other people think we must be seeing the same thing, which was an airborne reddish tinge of white light, bright light 15 miles to the east of the Argosy and tracking with it. Okay, that, that happened. The aircraft disappeared. We transferred it to Christchurch and at Kaikoura, a place called Kaikoura East, a reporting point, it was transferred to Christchurch and we lost it. It, fell off, it went off our radar, because we were only watching just down the slightly south of Kaikoura. Nothing else happened that night, but we wrote up in the log what was happening, and thought nothing more of it until I went home, and I got a phone, i just got the bid after a long night shift, and um, the phone rang, and it was this press from uh, Sydney telling wanting to know what the story was, because of course, just a few weeks previous to that, there had been the Valentich incident outside uh, in Australia. Right. And, mary ann i sure you can find that one for me?
0: Yes, yes, yes. I know all about that. That was the pilot that disappeared?
1: Disappeared, that's right. right. That That was the thing that was causing the most interest, I think, because, of, you know, Kaikoura recent, so recently after it. Right. Okay. So, anyway, carrying on. Then the... Uh, there was a Channel 9 in Sydney television company. They had a reporter in New Zealand on holiday, Quentin Fogarty, and he was told by his people to come and interview us for a, uh, a little short news story. And Quentin managed to get, to be able to fly in an Argosy down the same route at the same time of night that the, the, of, of the previous, previous sightings, Solely, as he said, all they expected to get was some views of the coast and just a general background to the story.
0: Right.
1: Well, that didn't happen. They took off, and as they moved to go to Christchurch, suddenly they had they, the, my, the radar controller that night was reporting that they were targets to all around the Argosy, and sure enough, they could see these white lights in the sky. They also had on board, as he said, obviously, a cameraman, and he got photographs of these lights around the Argosy going south to Christchurch. And then again, when they came back north, they were tracked by UFOs just about the whole way back to Blenheim, which caused a great, great stir, as you can imagine.
0: Mm. I actually remember when it happened, I was nursing then at a private hospital in Auckland. Yeah. And I remember following it with great interest because I've been an experience in my entire life. So this was very exciting for me. On this one where the, where the film crew caught them, John, how many UFOs were there spotted in, the, in that one, that time? I don't know, because they only, fil- they
1: only managed to film one at a time. Right. They didn't get, you know, an image of multiple lights. They just got film of one at a time.
0: Sorry, John, I should have specified. I meant from your from your radar control, how many were picked up?
1: That they were picking up five or six. Wow. But they were in various positions around the airplane, and obviously the cameraman couldn't cover them all at once.
0: Oh, you know? obviously, yeah. yeah. That, that must have been actually pretty scary for them.
1: It was. In fact, the, the cameraman's wife who was on board as a sound recordist, she refused to fly back north with them. Wow. She was so frightened, she refused to fly back north with them. So, they filmed all the way north and got some rather nice shots of, of the UFOs, or a, unknown aerial phenomena, as we should now call them, I guess. Yes. And um, Then the, the Documentary was made, and off it went, and that led to a rash of documentaries. In fact, I've been in ten documentaries, four mini-programs on UFOs, and a few radio uh, interviews as well, and it's still going on. I did a talk in, in Kaikoura just before last Christmas on the 40th anniversary of the sightings.
0: Well, it's been 40 years.
1: Wow. <gasps> 40 years, yet.
0: Oh, wow. And still how,
1: going.
0: how has this impacted your life, John?
1: Well, it's, it's... Every time I think it's going to go away, some, something or someone else comes up and says, like I had a, a, journalist, a journalist trainee interview me on the subject for a paper for his master's degree. Right. You know, it 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 just suddenly keeps popping up,
0: oh.
1: and it's it, it's it's intriguing because no one has yet explained satisfactorily to me what it was.
0: Right.
1: One one gentleman who was a I got great respect for these people and their expertise in their own field. But this gentleman said, "Oh, it was reflections from the lights of the squid boat." <laughs>
0: yes.
1: There are no clouds in the sky, so what were the reflections reflecting, what were the lights reflecting off? Right. Either that or the airplane, because the pilots, of course, are thick and stupid, the airplane was flying inverted, and they did not, you know, the lights (laughs) were on the sea, the airplane was inverted, so of course, they thought the lights were above them. (laughs) Yeah. And Another person said it was Venus. But then another astronomer said it was Jupiter. Right. So they can't even make up their minds which planet it was. Right. And if it was a planet, why am I suddenly seeing it on my radar 15 miles away from an airplane? Right. Got problems here. <laughs> then it was the Harbour Lights of Wellington going south at 150 knots, 180 <laughs> knots. Come on, you know. As I say, nobody. Nobody, oh, and of course, the, the other, the the, the general cop out for all of them was that the radar was notorious, as one gentleman said in the um, Invasion Earth documentary on National Geographic, was notorious for playing up and showing angels and that. Uh-huh. Did he not think that we know what angels look like on a radar screen? Did he not think that being professionals, we would not have used the radar if it was? If it was showing up so playing up so badly, is he happy then to entrust his safety to us right. to look after him when he's flying? Obviously, he is. Right. But we were stupid that we we couldn't recognise an angel or a spurious return on the radar when we saw it. Wow. None of them have ever considered all of the evidence, the photographs that say that show the lights. I don't. I'm not saying they're alien spacecraft. They're unidentified aerial phenomena, as it does, the U.S. Navy have now decided. Right. But nobody has yet said, "Okay, there was an object. There was a light 15 miles away from an airplane. It must have been the same thing because when it disappeared and came back, both the radar and and the visual sightings reoccurred." Nobody's considered the whole of the evidence together. The evidence of the film, the, eye, the, the eyewitnesses, the radar contacts, nobody has considered all of them together. Right. And I don't know where we go from there, quite frankly.
0: And, and that must actually, must have caused you guys quite a bit of frustration, I imagine, yeah, because... We,
1: we actually got quite frustrated because we, the, part, the, the air crew and us, that we were being belittled. Yeah. You know, oh, we're, we're stupid. Maybe we drank too much pre-Christmas wine. Yeah. It, it, we were made to feel that, oh, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. We are experts preening themselves. The gentleman on the invasion Earth one who says that the radar was notorious is sitting there stroking his telescope, large telescope like a phallic object. But we're stupid, you know.
0: <laughs> right. oh, oh, sorry, I just we, have this visual in my mind.
1: <laughs> we are stupid, you know.
0: But I understand your frustration, and you are professional. I mean, people trust you with their lives, exactly. and yet they can't trust your judgment call on this. It's just no. I, I, I you know, yeah. I'm sorry that you were treated like that because that's oh, just yeah. absolutely wrong.
1: These, these things happen. I, I, I think, to be fair to the experts, and it's only a guess on my part, their brief with this program, Invasion Earth, was to s- suggest that there is, in fact, no threat to right, Earth from right. these things.
0: Right. And
1: I suspect that is the background premise of, that the producers have, have given them. Right. You know, these things, try and denigrate them as much as you can, because we would prefer that there is no threat to Earth.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. been that's been actually the way the governments have worked with all the UFO yeah, things. I I
1: I, 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 I agree with. Uh, I can't remember the gentleman who wrote it. He considers that the governments of the world know more than they're saying, mm. but that they're fright. They are frightened to release the truth because it would cause chaos.
0: That's the excuse they use anyway.
1: Oh, it's a good excuse. Yeah, yeah, but, you know. yeah,
0: it's a good excuse. Yeah, yeah. And and all these years you've carried that that memory this whole time, and as you said, it won't die because somebody like me always comes along and brings it oh, back yeah. up for you.
1: That's right. Yeah,
0: but yeah,
1: I don't mind. I mean, I'm quite happy to to talk about it, but. Um, as I said, I've got no firm conclusions as to what they were. They were unidentified flying objects. But the clue is the word "unidentified." Correct. All we saw were or all was we seen were lights in the sky and radar targets. Nothing solid, metallic, or whatever. If you know what I mean.
0: Yes, I do. Yes, absolutely. And and like. In any other situation, people would be calling on you for your technical knowledge and your expertise. But just in this, they don't accept it. It's just double standards, eh? Just double standards.
1: As I say, they they refuse to recognize the fact that the radar could see something where the pilots could see something and that the two coincided. But they, they don't want to admit to that. Right. Because that, that to me, that tells, that tells me that they don't know what they're, what they're saying. Right. They, they are guessing as much as I am.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, from this, this incident, how has that, has that created an interest in you in this area?
1: Or? I've always been interested in UFOs. It all started back in nineteen fifty-four or thereabouts. I can't remember the year, now had to be honest. I was working nights in the operations room at uh, RAF St. Devon near Newquay in Cornwall, having been grounded with an ear infection. And uh, an airman was walking along the road with me, called my attention to a green light that was traveling quite quickly across the sky. Uh, I thought, oh, it's a meteor. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it sharply turned, and I mean sharply turned, 45 degrees to the right. Now, airplanes, when they turn, however fast they're going, they turn in circles. They turn in arcs. This thing almost spun on a sixpence, 45 degrees on a different angle.
0: Wow.
1: So that that became a UFO, of course. And those we had to report to Air Ministry at that time. Right. And the interesting thing was that I, I got the ops and was handed a signal from one of our aircraft that was about 300 miles out over the Atlantic. And it described seeing exactly the same thing.
0: Wow. So that was absolute vindication for you.
1: That's right, yeah. Yeah. And that that sort of... I've been, as I say, I've been interested in UFOs ever since.
0: Right. And so you started... After after a period of time, you started working with Susie and the Ufocus NZ team. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I don't know when Susie and I finally first got together, but... Um, we started talking about, I started talking about it, and I've been to Tauranga to talk to the UFO group out there, up there about the things. Stay with Susie, and um, I, ag- I agreed to help her with investigations that in- included aircraft sightings, it, it, or, and other sightings as well. Right. And I, I, I've, I've tried to investigate and as best I can, again with an open mind, looking first for a, uh, not a logical explanation but a, a practical explanation right. that this was a barrage balloon for, you know yeah, whatever yeah. what if if I could find a, a, I'm, I'm lost for words in a moment no I,
0: I understand if you could find a reasonable rational a
1: reasonable logical explanation yeah. for it that I would use yeah. but if I couldn't then I would start looking for, for these unnatural
0: right. Wow. And,
1: and sometimes you just could not find a rational explanation for the sightings.
0: Wow, that's really cool. So is there any one in particular over the years that you've worked with, Susie, that stands out for you?
1: Not really. Um, now, I, I, don't, I can't think of one that stands stands out in my mind. The only one that stays in my mind, quite frankly, is Kaikura, hmm. and that is in part because it keeps on being brought up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I totally if get pe- that.
1: If people are interested, we, mm-hmm. the people who were involved, Captain Startup, who was that, was another thing that I think people made some people think it was a hoax. Right. the the, the cap the aircraft captain's name was Bill Startup. And the pilot, the cam- cameraman was Davy Crockett.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: And I think that made people say, "Oh, you know, it's got to be a, it's got to be a hoax." Right. Yeah, but it, of course it wasn't. It wasn't a hoax.
0: Right. We no. weren't
1: in the business of hoaxing. People.
0: No, not at all. And and it was your professional livelihood on the line. Why would you put exactly. something out that was incorrect when it's you know
1: That's right, exactly. When you had your yeah.
0: professional credibility to consider. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We we have indeed, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh look, John! I am really grateful to you for taking the time to share your experience of those evenings with me, and
1: that's okay. That's
0: fine. I really, really appreciate that.
1: The funniest thing you asked about the way it affected my life. Yeah, it's quite comical because at one time, uh, Paul Holmes did a did a, a an article an item on it. Right. And I was interviewed for that with, for his television program. Well about two days after it screened I was in a cafe in town having my lunch there were two two ladies looking and they kept looking across at me and talking to each other. Finally one of them came over and she said, excuse me she said, I hope you don't mind my asking but my friend and I can't agree. Were you or were you not on the Paul home show the other night? I said, yes I was. <laughs> and that, that, that is the people I saw you on television the other night
0: oh that's really cute I'm really grateful for your time thanks very much
1: not a problem take care and have a good day
0: you too bye-bye John bye-bye John's recollections of those nights remain as unwavering as the night he was first witness to them. Fogarty wrote this about John in a book about the events and a quote. The events of 21st December which he described as incredible had obviously had a profound effect on him. He said he'd never experienced a shift like it in all his years near traffic control. He told me he had an open mind on UFOs but he admitted there were things in the sky that morning that he could not explain. I asked him if the returns he and Andy had picked up could have been such things as clouds, ships at sea, or even road traffic in the clearance area. No, he didn't think so because there were too many factors involved. We had people on the ground seeing things, he said, pilots in the air seeing things, and we had returns on radar. There's no one who witnessed the events on these nights, whose lives have not been touched by these incidents. As Quentin Fogarty says in his book, Let's Hope They're Friendly, the Kakura UFO's first verified film encounter with unidentified flying objects. Quote, The aftermath of the 31st December sightings was traumatic, not only for my family and me, but for all those involved in those mysterious events friendships fell apart marriages suffered and people's hopes and aspirations took a tumble this is not simply a story about UFOs it is also a very human account of what happened to a group of ordinary people who found themselves caught up in an extraordinary situation End quote for those still alive today, the repercussions of these events continue to haunt them in one way or another, not the least of which, is John says in our conversation.
1: Every time I think it's going to go away, some, something or someone else comes up and says, like I had a, a, journalist, a journalist trainee interview me on the subject for a paper for his master's degree. Right. You know, it, it, it's... It just suddenly keeps popping up. Uh-huh. And it, it, it's it's intriguing because no one has yet explained satisfactorily to me what it was.
0: Or this comment.
1: I mean, I'm quite happy to, to talk about it, but um, as I said, I, I've got no firm conclusions to, as to what they were. They were unidentified flying objects, but the clue is the word... Unidentified. Correct. All we saw were, or all was seen were lights in the sky and radar targets, nothing solid, metallic or whatever if you know what I mean.
0: Unidentified aerial phenomena is the term most commonly used these days to describe UFOs, but for folks like John who lived through these events there has been no resolution. This was an event that broke up marriages, created huge emotional trauma for many of the folks on a very real, very physical level, not to mention the fact that they had their preconceived notions of what reality is completely shattered. these experiences. With no support systems in place to help these people, many were vilified and laughed at, made fun of, or dismissed as being crackpots or charlatans. But you cannot dispute the eyewitness evidence seen by the professional people whom we entrust with our lives when travelling in the skies, the radar and visual evidence is seen. I personally know for myself that life exists off of this, our third rock from the sun, our planet Earth that we are not the only civilizations existing in this cosmos, but for people like John and Quentin and all the others involved in this, it's been a hard struggle for them to come to terms with what they experienced. Some had more difficulty than others, but none of them had any sort of emotional or psychological support after one of the world's top 10 most credible filmed UFO encounters ever. I personally take my hat off to these ladies and gentlemen involved in this. Kudos to them for standing up to the intense public scrutiny and disbelief of many people that followed. Their strength in the face of this disbelief opened the way for people to be able to be more open about their experiences. For that, I thank you all. If this episode's brought up any memories and issues for you, then you can always contact Susie's UFO Experiences support team at www.communicatorlink.com. Or if you want to talk to me about your experiences or memories, you can email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or through the podcast website contact page www.walkintheshadowlands.com. Just be kind to yourself and know it's okay to remember and you most definitely are not alone in your experiences. The score today is called Private Reflection by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. For more information, check out this episode's page on the podcast website. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to contact me. Or if any of you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make, or experiences that you might like to share with myself and my audience, then just email me at shadowlands at yahoo dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and. Don't be shy to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts or on your chosen podcasting platform. Who knows, you may hear your review read out at the end of one of these podcasts. And of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and available from iHeartRadio as well if you don't have a smartphone then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com for those hearing impaired there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website so you don't miss out at all tell your friends tell your family tell your workmates about our show encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. the more the merrier Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week.